welcome to For the Record, the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the music, politics, and culture of the 70s. This is Amy, your host for this One Woman, One Mike show, and today we are going to examine glam, the makeup, the glitter, the satin pants, the feather boas, and high-heeled boots, and, of course, the music. Why was glam rock born? Why was it so popular, if only for a short period of time? I will also make my case for why the theater of glam mattered as much as the music. But first, welcome to year three of the little podcast that could, which I started because I love 70s music and culture and history. And along the way, I found out that a lot of other people do too. So thank you to all my listeners, new and old, for, well, listening. Not to mention the nice notes I get every month and the cash contributions that help pay for the subscriptions for books and back issues of magazines and all of the research materials for the content. Here's what you can do in year three. You can leave a five-star rating on your podcast app to help others find the show. You can chip in some cash, even a dollar or two per month can go to help uh, keeping the website up up and going. The website address is ftr70.com. You can just click on a recent episode and click on the Patreon link and follow the directions from there. This also helps keep those dreaded ads at bay too. You could also just go and tell someone else about the podcast, which I really do appreciate very much. The British music critic Simon Reynolds, who was born in 1963 and grew up in the early 70s in England, thought that glam was just what pop music was. You might compare that with uh, Gen Xers like me, who, when they were nine, thought that all generations were blessed with disco. Reynolds describes what he calls the glam-derived idea of pop as alien, sensationalistic, hysterical in both senses, a place where the sublime and the ridiculous merge and become indistinguishable. Looking back, you can see it was men in sparkles and sequins and spandex, men who were taking what Little Richard started and um, pushing it to the limit and creating a gender-bending brand of rock and roll that burned through the early 70s. To the eye, it was absurd for the sake of, of being absurd. If you were not shocked by the costumes or by Alice Cooper's snake or by David Bowie's never-ending slide up and down the sexual spectrum, then they were not trying hard enough. The thing that makes glam glam, or glitter rock, as many Americans called it, is not so much the style of rock as it is the theatrics that deliver the rock in a live performance. Just listening to the music on the radio did not immediately signal that this was a rock subgenre in the way that, say, progressive or southern rock did. But to dismiss the theatrics as meaningless is to dismiss the people who found the theatrics meaningful. Yes, this was post-Stonewall, but just barely, and the straight world was still in its very infancy of making space for those who did not identify as heterosexual. Not that the glam stars were gay, most were not. That's not the point. Rock music was and is the domain of masculinity, but glam rock challenged what that even means. 
No surprise that many rock critics didn't care for it. Uh, For example, Mike West, writing for the Daily News Journal in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, said in 1974 that glam rock's greatest attraction lies in its decadence. Its veiled reference to bisexuality, violence, and foulness in general seems to be attracting thousands of fans. Now, I know a writer from Tennessee, it's not hard to see how glam may not have been very big there. He also wrote this. Picture a 17-year-old boy wearing six-inch plastic heels with black stockings and a gold lemonade jumpsuit with his hair dyed pink. Don't forget the fact that he is probably wearing heavy makeup. He goes on to say that what is lacking is music and that the only bands that he can think of in 1974 that still made music were The Who and the Allman Brothers Band. Come on, Mike. To say that David Bowie and Glitter Rock's other Glamour Boys, question mark his, by the way, he put Glamour Boys, boys in question mark, lacked musicianship? I mean, come on, Mike. Roxy Music would like a word. I really think that the question mark after he wrote boys may have been the real problem. With a nod to Little Richard and his makeup and flamboyant costumes, most historians and critics agree that glam rock began with Mark Bolan, who formed the British rock band T-Rex in 1967. Four years later, Bolin and his glitter and satin pants and dark curly hair started the glam rock craze when T-Rex appeared on Top of the Pops. It was kind of like the British version of American Bandstand. David Evans, who is better known to us as The Edge and would go on to be part of a pretty famous rock band called U2, was watching from Dublin that day. He was nine and Bolin was 24. The Edge said... Mark Bolin was magical, but also sexually heightened and androgynous with this glitter and makeup. It's funny, the go-go dancers of the era were the legendary Pans people. He was way more sexually intriguing than they were. I'd never seen anything like him. You could find that performance, by the way, out there on YouTube. And what was notable to me was that you can see a young guy dancing in front of the stage. I mean, he was really getting into hot love. And he's wearing a suit and tie. Quickly, things are going to change. In a 1972 interview with Humphrey Burton on Rock of Ages, T-Rex had just played the top 10 UK hit, Jeepster. Burton asked a question that he said was out of what he called friendly ignorance. He asked if Jeepster is, and I quote, by any stretch of the imagination rock, or is that something completely different? Here's a short clip of Jeepster. Decide for yourself.
So what do you think? Uh, Bolin said, he said to that question, uh, is this rock? Bolin said it could be. He said it's more like 70s rock. And he said that, among other things, that what he wanted to do was to make rock exciting again. And he mentioned growing up listening to Eddie Cochran, you know, uh, Summertime Blues. Uh, now I want you to hold on to that thought, because Bolin was not the only glam rocker who said that he wanted to put some excitement into rock. Certainly, uh, driving beats, like in Summertime Blues, are a hallmark of glam rock. Maybe borrowing a bit from Little Queenie from Chuck Berry, you can also hear that on T-Rex's only hit in the United States, the song that is a very recognizable riff, Bang a Dong. number one in the UK for a month where the hype for T-Rex bordered on Beatlemania and it made it to number 10 in the US. Make no mistake though, just because it was the band's only number one or pardon me, top 10 hit in the United States does not mean that T-Rex was a one hit wonder. In 1971, T-Rex had four number ones out of five releases in England and they sold about 4 million records that year, which is more than the Beatles ever did in a year, and they sold more 45s, more singles, than The Who and Jimi Hendrix combined. As Michael Thomas put it in his 1972 article for Rolling Stone, everywhere they went, they tore the place apart. Mark Bolin died in a car accident in 1977, so who's to say what would have happened had he survived, and had he been able to kick his drug habit. By the time that uh, you hear this, T-Rex will be Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, too. Uh, The ceremony was held on November 7th. By the way, Doobie Brothers are also going to be inducted that day. I think it was Alice Cooper who made glam okay for Americans, or at least paved the way for it to be okay. There was a difference between Alice Cooper's brand of glam and Mark Bolin, and David Bowie probably put it best. This is what he said. British glam rock never made an impact on middle America to any extent. Before and apt, we were bookended by Alice and Kiss, butch, manly glam with lots of guillotines and fireworks, muscle and metal. No mistaking the sexual bent of those fellas. Nothing ambiguous about our boys. That's the only way Ohio could accept accept lipstick on males. So we limeys all swanned off sniffily to the wings where we did make an impression. For a brief moment or two, we ruled 
in New York and Los Angeles. That was from Glam, an eyewitness account by Mick Rock. So put another way, Americans were a bit too squeamish about the possibility of liking something that seemed too gay, which fueled some of the hatred of disco. And Alice Cooper made the theatrics of Glam okay, but it was masculine enough. The Edge said that even for him as a nine-year-old boy, liking Mark Boland's music and, and the look of Mark Boland, that it was confusing. He said, what the hell is this? Real lads are not into this kind of stuff. This is clearly music for girls. But when I picked up a guitar a year later, Hot Love was the first song I learned to play. The song I'm 18 was released in November 1970 and made it into the top 40. It's the song that I think opened the door for a record deal with Warner Brothers, and I think a lot of a lot of music historians would back me up on that. While the stage persona may have been influenced by Mark Boland, Alice Cooper's music was influenced by other Detroit area bands like the MC5s. It's aggressive, like this 1972 hit, a bit pissed off. School's out. <laughs> went to number seven on the Billboard chart in 1972, and the album of the same name made it to number two. I should point out uh, that Phoenix has claimed Alice as their own, given that he graduated from high school in Phoenix, and he's been a philanthropist and a humanitarian and an all-around pillar of the community um, long after he was scaring parents with his onstage shenanigans. However, in 1972, some radio stations would not play this song because it might, what, I don't know, encourage kids to not want to go to school as if they needed a song for that. The same thing happened to another brick in the wall and Pink Floyd about eight years later. I would like to say that I liked both of those songs and ended up becoming a teacher. So there you have it. Here's what Alice Cooper said about glam rock in 1974. Oh, the name was hard-hearted Alice, but you don't seem to be any hard-hearted guy. Well, the movie is about Alice, though. This isn't Alice. Uh Alice is a... uh, 
you know, I, I can't be Alice all the time because he's a little bit too dangerous. <laughs> By the way, uh, are there some kind of philosophic, political, or social tendencies in your performances and music, or are you just an entertainer? No, we're the all-American kids, you know. It's like uh, personified. The uh, you know we're we're like all Americans. If what we do is we just reflect what America's attitude is right now, you know. Um, people look at us as sort of some you know like a, a social scale. They look at us, the kids do, and they go, "Wow, is that what we're all going to become?" <laughs> and it must be a little frightening to parents. But you don't take any standpoint. No, I don't take anything seriously. Yeah. I don't take I don't take anything seriously because I don't believe in being preached to, and so I refuse to preach to anybody else. Yeah. Why did you choose rock music to be your medium? Why not theater? Well, it is it is both. That's the thing. You know, is the idea we incorporated rock, hard rock, very hard rock with um, you know, with the theater. Uh, I think it's I think. It's to the point now where rock groups just can't go up on stage with their Levi's on and say, "Come on, let's jam." You know that's dead. That that died in the '60s. Uh, this is a whole new thing where you have to come in and put a little icing on the cake. You know, and you have to get up there and and, and do a show for the kids. It's it's not uh, that that whole jam thing doesn't work anymore. So yeah, the show in most cases was just that. It was a show. Now that is permissible in most forms of entertainment, but in rock music, it was viewed by some as sacrilege. That show mattered to kids like Jim Farber, though, just like movies and plays matter to so many people. Jim Farber has been a music critic for about 30 years, and he wrote a piece for a Rolling Rolling Stone anthology on the 1970s. Farber was a gay kid who uh, was definitely not out, but felt safe to express himself because glam made it okay. He paints quite the picture with this. On a swampy July night in 1974, I left my suburban home bound for David Bowie's Diamond Dogs concert, dressed in midnight blue eyeliner, hepatitis yellow platforms, and a lollipop green jacket poofed at the shoulder and bustled in the back. Somehow, I was not killed, he said, How lucky for me to have been going through a sexual identity crisis at the precise moment that pop culture was having one, too. He also said that David Bowie was the patron saint of glam, and I cannot argue with that. Bowie did not have formal musical training in the way that many of his peers did, and maybe that was a good thing. Sometimes it helps to not be constrained by what you think the rules are. Bowie was interviewed for Playboy by Cameron Crowe, the guy who wrote the movie Almost Famous, based on his experience as a teen rock critic. Cameron was 19 when he interviewed David Bowie, and Bowie told him that he had never been a musician. He wanted to be a filmmaker and ended up making film on records, which is a good way of describing what he did with the rock opera the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the spiders from Mars. How to describe Ziggy Stardust? Ziggy Stardust is an omnisexual rock star who is sent to Earth five years before it dies due to the people of Earth depleting its natural resources. 
Ziggy is the messenger who was sent to Earth to communicate with the Earthlings on behalf of the Starmen. The message is that the Earth will be saved with peace and love. Sadly, Ziggy is destroyed in the end after believing too much in his own importance, believing that he truly was a prophet. The song Starman is written from the perspective of someone listening to Ziggy on the radio. Here's some of the lyrics. Didn't know what time it was and the lights were low. I leaned back on my radio. Some cat was laying down some get it on rock and roll. He said, then the loud sound did seem to fade. Came back like a slow voice on a wave of phase haze. That weren't no DJ. That was Hazy Cosmic Jive. Here's a bit of Starman. Starman, the lead single from the album. The album was added to the National Registry of uh, the Library of Congress in 2016 as historically or culturally significant. I'll say it was. Uh, It was released in the late spring of 1972. Starman was Bowie's first hit since Space Oddity in 1969, and it got Bowie a spot on Top of the Pops. He performs the song with his uh, hair cropped short in the front like a 1980s mullet, and he's dressed in this multicolored jumpsuit, and Mark Ronson is on the guitar. Uh, Bowie flirts with Ronson and struts around the stage, shocking parents, but thrilling kids. So what was the message that Bowie was trying to convey with Ziggy Stardust? In that interview with Cameron Crowe, he said, I have no message whatsoever. I really have nothing to say, no suggestions or advice. All I do is suggest some ideas that will keep people listening a bit longer. And out of all of it, maybe they'll come up with the message and save me the work. This is, this is me talking now, the epitome of making your art and putting it out there for the world to make of it what they will. He had accepted himself as an entertainer who did not take himself seriously. If you did, If James Barber or other gay kids who needed to see themselves represented in rock did, then I think that Bowie was perfectly fine with that. By the way, 
all the young dudes was supposed to be on the Ziggy Stardust album. Um, but then Bowie heard that Mott the Hoople was breaking up and he really liked the band. So he offered them the song Suffragette City. They didn't think that would be a hit. They turned it down. So he offered them all the young dudes instead. They were smart enough to say yes to that one. And I think they were shocked that he would just give them a song like that. The song is about there being no more electricity and the kids no longer wanting rock music and there's no electricity to even play it. So Ziggy goes to the kids to sing them the news and there is no news. A lot of people thought that All the Young Dudes was a gay anthem because of the line, Lucy looks sweet because he dresses like a queen. And of course, because the song is about young dudes. Bowie says no. Um, He said it wasn't that. Um, But again, you know, you are allowed to take art and interpret it how you want to, I suppose, when you, as an artist, you put it out there. This was supposed to be on the rise and fall of Ziggy Sardust and the Spiders from Mars, but instead it became Mott the Hoople's signature song. Don't want to stay alive when you're 25 And when you're stealing clothes from Marks and Sparks And Freddy's got spots from ripping up the stars From his face, funky little boat race The television man is crazy Sam with juvenile delinquent wrecks All the Young Dudes was written and produced by David Bowie, uh, top 40 hit in the United States in November 1972, number three in the UK, and in 2004, it was named by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as one of the 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. If you should ever find yourself in a debate about whether or not Roxy Music is a glam band, look no further than their debut album, the self-titled Roxy Music, that came out in 1972. The band actually thanked their hair, makeup, and fashion stylist in the liner notes. So take that, hippie rockers in jeans and t-shirts. Roxy Music was kind of a bridge between glam and punk, which was very popular, of course, at the end of the 70s. Their music was, as a lot of critics like to describe it, more sophisticated, than that of, say, T-Rex or Sweet. The 80s new wave fans out there uh, should also have an affinity for Roxy music. Tony Palmer, a music critic and rock documentary filmmaker in England, wrote about Roxy music in 1973. They had released two albums by this time, 
but they were still putting some of the pieces of the band together. Palmer did not have very nice things to say about those albums, calling them overproduced. But he did have some nice nice things to say about the live show he saw in the spring of 1973. He said the group was, and I quote, demonic, sinister, apocalyptic, monstrous, dazzling, flashy, what opera might have been in the 1970s had it not lost its nerve. There was also a warning uh, in his review of the show that the band should not resort to gimmicks and essentially sell out. Therein, of course, was always the danger for glam bands that the music would be overshadowed by the theater. You still had to make music that would get played on the radio and that would sell records, though. Glam bands were walking the the very fine line of poking fun at rock while still making rock music. Roxy Music took it a step further and in many ways reinvented rock. As an article in The Economist, of all places, uh, makes the argument that the only reason that Roxy Music is not praised, like David Bowie, for their contributions to rock history is that they were making music at the same time as David Bowie. I mean, their debut albums were released on the same day, June 26, 1972. Sometimes you just have to chalk it up to timing, and if you breathe the same air as a legend, well, maybe you're going to have to just accept that you aren't a legend. Not that we should feel sorry for Roxy Music or Brian Eno or Brian Ferry. They got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2019, even though Bowie got in in 1996. I kind of found that as I was perusing old reviews of Roxy Music's music, and I'm not talking about necessarily things that modern critics or music historians are looking at, but what was thought of Roxy music at the time. And it seemed to be kind of a love it or hate it kind of situation. Um, The author of the article that I was just quoting, even though, again, looking back, he believes that Roxy music was the best British British rock band other than the Beatles. Looking back uh, into the 70s, John Wadsworth, who was writing for the Daily Tar Heel, the student newspaper at UNC Chapel Hill was glowing, glowing when it came to his thoughts on Roxy Music. He wrote in 1974 that Roxy Music is, quote, the mating of the electronic with the lucid rock in the dimensionless bed of the avant-garde. And he said that no earthly voice compares to Brian Ferry's. Wadsworth wrote of Ferry, that he is a receptacle for the same divine impulses that have blessed our senses with William Blake and Sun Ra. He said, in the ethereal, Roxy music has been a source of increasingly moving spirit music as defined by logic and grace as enjoyed by the soul. In other words, he really liked the band. He of the flawless voice, Brian Ferry, said the same thing, that Alice Cooper said, and that Mark Boland said when asked about the hair and the makeup and the theatrics that were part of Roxy Music's image. He essentially said that it was just an exciting part of the show, that it wasn't everything, but that it was entertainment. And that is how 
glam bands viewed themselves. Here is a clip of the band's biggest hit in the United States, Love is the Drug. a song that is ahead of its time. That song, Love is the Drug, uh, was a top 40 hit in 1975, but it would have been a monster smash 10 years later. Um, You can also, in that bass line, you can also hear um, something that sounds very much like Good Times by Chic. And if that sounds familiar, if you can think, okay, I know what Good Times by Chic sounds like, then you can also pair that with uh, the Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight, uh, which is, of course, the beginning of the of hip-hop in the way that we know it. So Roxy Music had its hands on influencing both 80s new wave and hip-hop or rap. I don't think that there is a stage production or movie that made better use of glam rock than Rocky Horror Picture Show. I mean, have you seen Rocky Horror Picture Show? I bet you have. Somewhere, sometime. How many times did you see it? Once? Twice? Ten times? Twenty? More? I'm guessing a few of you have seen it maybe more than 20 times. Um, Rocky Horror is the rock musical that is so bad it's good. It started as a stage play and found renewed and sustained life as a cult movie classic. Even if you have not attended, you probably know that audience participation, complete with the costumes and throwing rice at Brad and Janet's wedding and running down to the screen to do the time warp is all part of the experience. Tim Curry plays the lead Dr. Frankenfurter, who is a scientist and a transvestite from transsexual in the galaxy of Transylvania. His project is to create his own Frankenstein, Rocky, and he does this while dressed in spangled women's lingerie and 
living in a castle that hosts a drag show and has a cavalcade of guests that make Mardi Gras look like a church picnic. A lot of people went for fun, but a lot of other young people went to find their people. Uh, Nell Ward, an English teacher, I'm pretty sure, um, it's, I was trying to trace exactly who he was, but I, I believe an English teacher at Trevor Brown High School in Phoenix in 1980 wrote that for some kids, this gave them something in common with the kids in Los Angeles and in, in New York. And it was more fun than cruising Central, which was essentially driving aimlessly up and down Central Avenue in Phoenix. He also compared Rocky Horror to like a modern Greek chorus. The movie is, as I said, based on the 1973 musical, and the soundtrack is as essential to the film as the costumes. Tim Curry said in an interview in 1974 that the energy of the film comes from the music. While the entire film is influenced by glam, not every song was, like a Meat Loaf's performance of Hot Patootie, Bless My Soul. That's more of an homage to 50s rock. But Sweet Transvestite, that is glam all the way. How'd you do, I? See, you've met my faithful hand in hand. He's just a little broad dime because when you knocked, he thought you were the candy man. Don't get strung up by the way I look. Don't judge a book by its cover. I'm not much of a man by the light of day, but by night I'm one hell of a lover. I'm just a sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania. Fans of the movie know that uh, Tim Curry sings this to Brad and Janet, played by uh, Barry Bostwick and Susan Sarandon. I think, I argue, that Sweet Transvestite is every bit as ballsy and sexy and gender-bending as anything uh, performed by Bowie or Mark Bolan. In 1998, the Edmonton Journal in Alberta, Canada, ran a contest in their newspaper called the Love is Like Oxygen Contest, which rewarded the reader who sent in the worst unintentionally bad song lyrics, excluding country songs, with a chance to win the Have a Nice Decade box set, which, by the way, I own and is awesome, is full of 70s uh, classics. The point being, of course, though, that Love is Like Oxygen has horrible lyrics. I think maybe that the Edmonton Journal was being a bit harsh on Sweet, uh, the band that wrote and performed this song. I mean, it was 1978, and glam was all but over, and Sweet already had hits like Ballroom Blitz and Little Willie, which I think was more of a bubblegum song than rock, but anyway. So they were an established band. I can actually hear in Love is Like Oxygen how glam is transitioning into metal with this song. And lo and behold, this was confirmed for me when Andy Scott, the band's songwriter and the lead guitarist said, we were already a part rock, 
part metal band. That is when I wrote the song, Love is Like Oxygen. And then the idea came along to compose it in a style which at that time was totally new, yet one that suited us. That is from uh, the 1978 album Level Headed, and it made it to number eight on the Billboard Pop Chart. The album version of Love is Like Oxygen is a little bit different, uh, a little more disco-ish in spots because it's 1978, and that's how we rolled in 1978. Go check it out on YouTube, or what the heck? Go buy the music. By the late 70s, glam is on its way to becoming 80s hair metal. Like so many genres of 70s music, it really didn't die. It just was reborn as something else. You can't really examine 70s culture without examining the changing views of gender and sexual identity, among other things. And that's what makes glam such a a worthy thing to talk about. If popular music really is a mirror of society, as I believe it is, then glam was not only a method of expressing some of our changing viewpoints, it created this safe space for it. The music was more than the costumes. After all, I mean, how are these shiny jumpsuits any different than the rhinestone nudie suits that the male country artists wore? I don't think they were. If you're going to accuse glam of being unauthentic because of the package it came in, then I think you're missing the whole point. The music is what you make of it. It is a personal relationship between between you and the songs, and you get to decide the authenticity. That is all for this episode of For the Record, the 70s. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow the show on Instagram at 70s Podcast. All of my sources are in the show notes on ftr70.com. Bye, everybody.